0: Hi, I'm Mark Kovacs, and welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 77 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This week, I speak to Mark Kovacs, an expert in more areas of tennis than I had anticipated. There's a lot of good knowledge we picked up in this episode. I left the chat definitely with more questions than I began with. We talk about playing late in Ute as an eight-year-old, training during COVID, the makeup of pro tennis players, genetics, the fitness combine, predicting success, weight training for juniors, and a lot more. Mark simplifies and helps easily explain all the topics. We are also having a live webinar with Mark on planning and periodization for tennis players. So keep an eye out for it on our email list or Instagram account and sign up. There will also be a recording available afterwards. Regarding our last episode speaking to pro skiers Trevor and Eric, did you enjoy it? If you did or didn't, please let me know as we may have more in the future. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors Slinger. And to find out more about the awesome portable ball machine, go to slingerbag.com or if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at Instagram or send me an email at ace at functionaltennis.com. Okay, here we go. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited and looking forward to it.
1: It's great to have you on the show. A lot of people said, you got to get Mark on, you got to get Mark on. And I didn't know too much about you. I've obviously, I've heard of the Kovacs Institute a lot. Uh, you do a good work, bit of work on Instagram. Uh, you've loads of webinars, podcasts, and hadn't, hadn't done too much research. But what I was most excited about was your books, Complete Condition for Tennis and Tennis Anatomy. They're two of the best technical tennis books out there and I didn't know that you were the man behind them. So that's amazing. And can't wait to hear about how you started those books. Maybe we can start with that.
0: Yeah, sure thing. Um, so those couple books you mentioned, are one of a handful uh, of, of products we've done over the years. And I've been fortunate to be mentored by a number of leading sports scientists, tennis coaches in the industry. And I was pretty young when we started some of these projects. Uh, I have a background in research uh, in the academic world, as well as being a practical coach, trainer uh, with, a- with athletes. So my sort of background sits in between uh, a few different fields. And those couple books you mentioned were really a way to summarize some pretty complex concepts, but try to make it accessible to the masses. And that was really the objective of both those. Uh, complete conditioning for tennis um, with Paul Rodert and uh, Todd Allenbecker. Uh, Paul Rodert uh, was the general manager for uh, player development for the USTA for a number of years. And Todd Allenbecker uh, is the head of um, medical services for the ATP, plus a number of other things that they do. So very fortunate to work closely with some true experts in the field. And you know, those products hopefully have provided a resource for individuals. They're more aimed at the the, the recreational slash competitive player uh, focused on trying to improve their game, understand their body better and, you know, get themselves healthier and fitter and hopefully try to prevent injuries as well.
1: Well, I think if, well, I've seen, sorry, a lot of tennis coaches with these books. And if you're serious about your tennis, there are definitely two books that you need on the bookshelf, which you can learn so much. How did you get started with the whole Tennis Anatomy one?
0: Yeah, so that was a that was a great one because if you haven't seen that resource, the folks out there, it's it's probably, I'm a bit biased because I was involved in it, but the visuals in that book are some of the best anywhere on the planet. Um, so we actually went through a full photo shoot uh, going through all the strokes, all the movements, a bunch of exercises. And then we had an illustrator, a really high-level quality illustrator, actually draw the muscles onto the, the photos and turn them into illustrations. So it's some of the best illustrations out there that highlights the muscles, highlights movements, and really shows people what's actually happening, uh, using a lot of anatomical terms as well but also having practical application sections there. So that was one that came about that we just hadn't seen anything on the market similar. And there was something in the bodybuilding and fitness world that had been done for about 10 years earlier and had done really well and people really got excited by it in in that space. And we we suggested it uh, to the publishers and, and they were excited by it. And now there's a whole series of books in different sports that use the same concept.
1: That's amazing for anybody who, as you said, hasn't seen them, they're worth checking out and gives you a great understanding of all the strokes and the muscles that are being used and it obviously can help put training programs together and just give you a better understanding. And they're actually, uh, we just released our, well, it's been up a while by the time this airs, our Christmas gift list and they're two of the books you should be getting for Christmas. So just some great ideas there. But Mark, tell us more a bit about, you come from sort of the PhD background and the sports background. How did that come about? What is your tennis experience?
0: Yeah, so I was like a lot of people, I was a junior tennis player in Australia. I, I, I grew up um, in the era of Leighton Hewitt. So Leighton and I played each other at national tournaments. First time we played, I think I, I was eight, he was seven. Um, and we played each other at least a dozen times in national tournaments uh and then i played uh, a lot of the junior slams played the itf circuit uh, and you know, played doubles at the junior us open with andy roddick uh, that was the year before he got his big serve so i always give him a hard time it would have been nice to have played with him once he had his serve uh, but then went to college in the us uh, won an ncaa title there in doubles played professionally for a short period but was having a lot of shoulder problems while i was in college and you know had it, it was this was 20 years ago now. So it was a bit misdiagnosed. They didn't really know what was going on. They were treating the wrong thing and it got worse and worse and the pain got worse and worse and um, actually ended up having to have surgeries on it. And it really got me into this whole world of uh, sports performance, injury prevention, and understanding the body better. And from that perspective, I worked As a strength and conditioning coach in other sports uh, for a few years because really after I stopped playing, I didn't want to be involved in tennis. Uh, I wanted to shift and learn from other sports Uh, and then sort of got pulled back into the tennis world and really had had the opportunity to do some neat things there and opened up um, but wanted to answer that question of why. Why are we doing things a certain way? The training that I had was pretty antiquated but was – you know what everyone did back then um it was you know very much uh, uh you know very very traditional sort of training which still happens a lot and there's still some really good benefits from it but there were some things that didn't make a lot of sense like we'd run you know we, we'd run five miles seven miles pretty regular and it just didn't link up with how you play the game and i wanted to understand the why behind it so i went back and did my phd in physiology with a focus in biomechanics as well to understand movements and the body and thought I was going to be in the academic world for the next 30 years doing research studies in the lab and things like that. And I really enjoyed that, but I really missed the practical application side of things and had an opportunity to work with the USTA, um, sort of heading up their sports science area uh, when they started their new player development center. This was about 12 years ago now. Uh, and working with the best players in the country, trying to develop them, and you know that was a real a great opportunity because I could still stay involved in some research, worked uh, with the USTA Sports Science Committee, which was some of the best researchers uh, on the planet in the sport of tennis, and also work day to day in the gym with athletes, work with coaches in coaching education, and trying to integrate all these areas to you know do what we do, which is you use the best available evidence-based information to make better tennis players, but also to make better coaches. Sort of that environment, it was there for six years, nearly full time, which was a great opportunity, and then had a chance to direct the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, which was outside of tennis. And that was with the NFL, with the NBA, with Major League Baseball, um, worked with the Brazil national team uh, for one of the World Cups. So, you had, had an opportunity to sort of just get some really unique experiences in the world of sports science, training athletes, research, innovation, technology, and that really exposed me to a lot of unique technologies from some of the biggest brands in the world. And then after that, you know, really set up our own institute that sort of was a combination of everything I'd done previously. So, it was part coaching education, part athlete focused training assessments, uh, and also heavily focused on sport technology, analytics, and uh, working with various companies on helping them improve their products, being an outside science resource for a number of brands. Uh, In in the sport of tennis, but also in other areas. And that's been a fun sort of trajectory of of my career and still work every day with players uh, and coaches, um, typically at the professional level or the very elite junior level. But we do have um, options for recreational players junior players, parents to, that want to get a little bit more information on on evidence-based training, using science to help them better train their athletes.
1: Wow. Uh, that's, that's an amazing journey and experience that you've got. And one of my questions to you, which, I, which you've sort of answered there was, I quite didn't understand exactly what the COVAX Institute was. It seemed to me just like a lot of things. And you've sort of I can understand now with your background what more the Kovacs Institute is and how you've pieced it all together. But before you tell me more about that, what was Leighton you'd like as a eight-year-old?
0: Yeah, I mean, very similar to what you saw on, on tour. Very feisty, great competitor, trained harder than anyone else on the planet. Um, and, you know, we, it, was, it was obvious at a young age he was going to be really good. How good? It, you know, it's hard to tell when... Players are 8, 10, 12, but he had the competitiveness, he had the work ethic, um, and that's kind of what you look for at those young ages and with our talent ID programs now, that's our two biggest factors is what are the athletes' competitiveness um, and how hard do they want to work. And if they have both those boxes checked, you know they're going to be pretty successful. Then you got to figure out their kinetics, their physical, all those other factors. But if they don't have those two components – they're going to be limited at some point on their journey. So, yeah, he he, he was feisty as, as as any player I've ever played. And, you know, it's, it, it's a lot of stories I can't tell on the air either. So, you know, it's it, but it was great being around, you know, someone like that because you got to see it up close. But also I was fortunate growing up in Australia. You had all the great Aussies. I spent a lot of time with Pat Cash. Uh and, and that generation, Pat Rafter, Mark Philipoosis, you know, so you, you got to see a lot of these really great players and how they went about their business in different ways. Uh and you know, it, it helps understand mindsets, you know, and every athlete is so different that you can't just look at one athlete and say, That's how to do it, because there are certain similarities among all of them, but there's a lot of differences as well.
1: What's the one Common factor between all them.
0: I mean, the the competitiveness and that um, you know, focus on you know trying to get the most out of their abilities in different ways. But how they how they go about that is a little bit different. Some have the mindset of I'm I'm not as talented in their mind as someone else, so I have to work exceptionally hard, and I use that as motivation. Others that have maybe more gifts, you know, whether it's physical gifts, whether it's tactical, technical gifts, they sometimes in many respects don't always work as hard on the outside to many people because it comes a bit easier for them, but they have to work on other areas. Uh, And that's where I think a lot of people misunderstand some of these players that may have more what we see as physical gifts, but they have some real challenges many times. And that's why many players don't necessarily fully succeed or maximize their potential. And people look at them and say, well, they underachieved. They may not have underachieved. They may have actually maxed out their areas of weakness, but their areas of weakness were uh, so strong that they couldn't get above that to have the great results. Um, And it's really hard as well. I think that's the one thing people have got to understand is, you know, being top 10 in the world is one of the hardest things in any industry to do. And people say, hey, this player is 20, 30, 40, 50 in the world, and they're underachieving. And you have to be careful with looking at someone like that because, you know, being 50 in the world is an outstanding accomplishment. And it's really, really challenging to, as we get closer to the mountain, there's less air. You know, we use that statement a lot. The higher you go, the less air that exists. And it's much, much tougher. Every step gets harder and harder. The closer
1: you get to the pinnacle, I I can only imagine. And you can see, and if you were to break down a top fifty player, if you dissected, what sort of percentages would you give? Work, work at a competitive genetics, more like. Is there a general formula there? You think, or it's completely different for either, every player?
0: No, I mean, we, we. the good thing is we know quite a lot now from the research in the genetics world, and there's a number of great researchers in uh, the UK and the um, Pennington Biomedical Research Center at LSU in the US, and there's a few others that have done so many great studies on the impact of genetics on excellence, whether it's in sports, the arts, um, you know, music, chess, and pretty much all the studies sort of show a similar uh, a trend and similar data that it's approximately fifty percent of results uh, based on genetics. So you you're born with certain skill sets, and that's why you know a a five foot four individual has never played really in the NBA. It's just they don't have the genetic skill set to play that sport. Doesn't mean they don't work hard. Doesn't mean they don't have a lot of skills that would translate to that. they're limiting one major factor. It's similar in tennis. If you're significantly slower than the benchmarks we have, we know you're not going to make it um, as a professional tennis player. You just don't have the foot speed to cover the court in the speed that tennis players need to play at a top 50 level. And we have benchmarks for things like that. So if you don't have that you're not going to make it. You may have a great serve, you may have a great return, you may have a great mindset, but you're missing something that is a, is a requirement. Uh, so there's certain things like that that we, we do know. Uh, but again, it's work ethic, you'll get you very far, discipline will get you very far, and doing things the right way and what the right way is is something that gets debated a lot among experts, and meaning that how how hard or how how long should you practice? What should you be working on? Should you mainly be working on your strengths? Mainly working on your weaknesses? Um, what are the skill sets that you need to be successful? And that's where it makes it complicated, uh, especially if it's a sport of tennis. I did a project with ESPN a few years ago, which was talking about who are the best athletes in the world across sports. And I was there to make the argument that tennis players were the best overall athletes out of any sport on the planet. And that's always a fun debate because there isn't a definitive answer. But it's very easy to make the argument that tennis, professional tennis players are the best overall athletes due to length of season, the need to play every day, back-to-back matches the one-on-one competition the need to be powerful strong stable fast with unbelievable endurance there like a Roger Federer isn't going to be the best at a vertical jump or a 20-yard sprint or he's not going to lift 500 pounds in the weight room but all those components he's very good at and you put all those together along with the endurance along with the Inability or the lack of injuries over the course of a career, Uh, and it's very easy to make that argument that they have an eleventh month season. All these factors that most team sport athletes that many people look at that say they're great athletes, which they are, but they're very good at certain variables. They're not necessarily great at all the variables. So it's it's an interesting discussion to have sometimes.
1: How heated did it get? Who was your main competitor on that discussion?
0: Yeah, I mean there was there was a lot of folks there was um MMA fighters had a representative which you know they have definitely some certain skills because they get hit a lot and there's violence in it and you know it's very challenging but again they only fight every few months they only fight for a small amount of time um so there's a there's a few big negatives if you're trying to make that argument for that sport you know, basketball, a lot of people will say "Hey, they're, they're the most explosive athletes on the planet, which vertical jump-wise they are. The data shows that. They have the best verticals on average out of any athlete. So that tells you they have, you know, explosiveness and, and, and that skill set. But their games, most, most players play 30 minutes a night. They get a four to five-month off-season, um, so they have lots of recovery time things like that, and they don't need excessive endurance either. So, you know, there's 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 all positive and negatives to all sports. It just depends on how you want to make the argument.
1: I'm surprised Conor McGregor hasn't called out Roger Federer yet, saying he's going <laughs> to take him on.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in his sport, he would win. But in tennis, I think Roger would have him. I think you put him on a neutral environment, maybe soccer, I think Roger would probably you know, take care
1: of it. I agree with you. And I'd hope so. But no, no Conor McGregor's a good guy. So you talk about a f- few things. One you just touched on there was you talked about basketball players having their five months off every year. That can help them with injuries, recover, get healthy, start the next season healthier. Tennis players this year have had a lot of rest time. Do you think... During the COVID and lockdown period this year, will help lengthen the careers of some players moving forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, most definitely. I've spent a lot of time over the last few months with um, you know various players, coaches, you know, working through plans, um, both with a return to to tennis plan, which was how did you how do you come back after the lockdown and the uh, inactivity, um, and hopefully we're through all that. In most areas, most players are still able to play even if their areas have had some lockdown environments. But um, that was a big challenge because you had to ramp up appropriately and we used some monitoring tools and devices and, and schedules to bring them back you know, in a optimum way. Uh, so that was a component. The next piece, especially to what you're talking about, is we saw personal best, not only in tennis but other sports, that players were actually coming back a month into training and a month and a half into training and actually doing way better than before they left. And that made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. One, the body had time to recover. They had a true off-season for the first time ever pretty much for most of these players. So the body could fully recover, they could fully rest, and then they could you know really build back up. And they had this – you know, in, in the sports science world, you sometimes use this term over – overcompensation, which is a positive. We actually want to have extra work that you would do normally and the result would be greater than normal. And if you periodize your programming effectively, that's what we see. We see that in the weight room. We see that with speed training. We see that with athletes that have a well-defined and designed program. Their results are way better than if they just consistently do sort of the same thing over and over again without these download periods so you have to have these download periods in the program this was a forced download and it resulted in some really really good results uh, physically for most of these players which was great to see and your specific question related to will this extend the careers of players it it should it should definitely increase the the, the longevity of some of these players um, especially some of the middle aged and older players, because they're the ones that you know were have the most damage to their body at this point and they needed that that recovery time. The younger players, they probably ha- will not see that benefit right now, potentially late in their career they may as a result of this, but it, it's definitely going to help some of them if they did the right, things during training, meaning that they didn't overtrain, meaning that they actually let the body recover and use that time effectively and that they ramped up appropriately as well.
1: Do you think all these these middle-aged players or even the younger ones will get next year to say, you know what, I'm actually going to force myself to take proper time off instead of season end straight into pre-season? Do you think there's more appreciation for putting the feet up for a while forcing yourself to do it
0: yeah i mean we've we've known this for forever and we've talked about it and we've tried with certain players and some players will it's just very hard for them to give up the money and the financial aspects of playing especially most players between 50 and 300 in the world they're not making a lot and they don't have the luxury to say, I'm going to take three months off and let the body rest and come back and and, and, and train if, you know on a schedule like that when they're giving up you know six, eight, ten extra tournaments that could really be making an impact, not only uh, dollars wise financially, but also ranking points which for many of them at that stage is even more important than the money because they've got to get up to the ranking levels that they need to so that they can then solidify their place in the big tournaments and then make the real serious money that, that you know that many of them want to and need to. So it's a, it's a great discussion. It's just the good thing about tennis, it's a global sport. Every country in the world wants to host tournaments. Um, the tours, the ATP and WTA – want to allow that to happen and, and expose tennis in different parts of the world. So you know, cutting back on the season is probably not realistically going to happen, but the higher level players do that already. I mean, you see the schedules of a top of a top 20 player is very different than a schedule of a hundred in the world player. And so they already take that into account. They have more people advising them. Usually uh, they have, you know, the financial resources to schedule their life a little bit better with off weeks with training blocks that are more consistent uh, and that creates them more likely to stay at that higher ranking level and that's why it's so hard to break into a top 20 because the good players don't want to give it up and they have potentially a bit more resources and expertise around them to help structure their training and competition schedules a little bit better.
1: It feels to me a bit like the chicken and egg. Which comes first? Like, should I just rest up and be super? You know, be supercharged for the for the twenty terms I'm going to play, or do I play thirty five tournaments and, you know, get tired at the end and take a chance? Maybe I will get a good result and. I think moving forward, if you are taking two months off every year, let's say two and a half months, well, you know, you're not going to lose any points next year because you didn't play that time last year either.
0: No, correct. I mean that's that that's a that's a very fair and reasonable um and and on paper the best way to structure it. You have all these different factors pulling at them though. Their agents wanting to play certain events because their agency may run those tournaments. Um, They want to play certain times of the year because uh, the tournaments may be a bit weaker and it may be easier for them to get points and dollars at those tournaments, even though it doesn't fit within their schedule as well. So you've got got a lot of competing factors. That's one of the funnest things that I I do is work with coaches and the agents sometimes on talking through these and just laying it out and say, hey, there isn't a perfect schedule because every player has – Different goals, they have different events they like to play on, surfaces come into it. How many weeks away do they like? Which are their favorite locations to play? So you sort of have this big uh, environment to pull from, and then you have to funnel it down into what are your best choices, best options for you. I, I link it a lot to how um, junior players, if they're going to go and play college tennis at a university somewhere, it's that similar to that process. They have all these options of where do you go, where are you going to study, what's the climate like, what are the coaches like, and they have to then, out of those, say, 50 options that are in their shortlist, they have to then narrow it down to one, whereas putting together an optimum schedule uh, for for a tennis player, especially a mid-ranked player, someone between, let's say, they're 100 to 400 in the world. That's a challenging schedule because they're in some tournaments, not in others. If you're top 40, top 50, you know your schedule. Your schedule's pretty consistent. It's once it gets harder, once you get a a ranking range that deviates a lot.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. Some of the more recent challengers were stacked with great players. So I know if you'd planned to get some tournaments in and you were ranked like 200, 250, you weren't making these challengers, which was crazy. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. This podcast is brought to you by Asics Tennis. Asics is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Court FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at asics.com. Asics Tennis have also just launched their new Court FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS visit their website www.asics.com And suddenly you mentioned you said you trained with the Brazil team What was it like being with those superstars, the Brazilian football team?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that was pretty, pretty unique. So we were uh, leading into the World Cup in Brazil um, was the time we were involved with them. And so we, we were assessing them from a nutrition standpoint, from a physiological perspective, from a sleep standpoint. And a lot of what we were doing was making personalized nutrition products for each athlete based on their unique physiology, and then also adjusting everything based on the locations of their games. Um, if people remember, in the Brazil War- World Cup, they had games in the Amazon. They had games up at altitude. They had games basically at the beach on sea level in different parts of the country. And it was one of the most unique and varied environmental conditions of any Olympics from a soccer perspective, from a football perspective. So we needed to actually do individualized um, you know, supplement and nutrition plans for each athlete, and so we had to test them all in our labs. And that happened, you know, the year before, because some of them were based in Europe, some of them were based in South America. So we had labs in uh, the UK and uh, in Florida that they would come to. Um, we would analyze them and then put together their their individualized plans. Uh, so that was that was a pretty unique project and very specific. And, you know, it was it was something that um, that's that sort of higher level athlete, unique personalized approach that trying now to give similar type resources to competitive juniors and, and, and you know professional athletes in other sports that may not have ever experienced that type of hands on care.
1: So maybe run through how you'd give a talented junior who comes to the COVAX Institute and goes, hey, Mark. I want that treatment. I want to do the best I possible can. How can you help me? Maybe you can run us through it. it would be great.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the majority of what we do now is actually consulting services for those type environments. So we still work with a few individual athletes, but mainly they're at the professional level. On the junior level, it 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 it's usually consulting with them, looking at who their team is, who's their coach, the parent involved, um, strength and conditioning, uh, physical therapy, who are their resources? And many of them they don't have, they may have a coach and the parent, and that's about all. Um, what we try to do is say you need to put together your performance team, your, your people that are close to you, that are going to help you on this journey. And then we, we help evaluate where are the, where are the opportunities? So, Hey, you need more, you need a standardized, you know, physical training program. And we can provide that or we can work with their person on their team to be um, a second set of eyes, like a second opinion, and help to find the areas they may be missing. Um, That includes sleep, that includes nutrition, that includes analytics, that includes all those areas that elite athletes utilize. Um, But in general, most of the tennis players sort of – don't have that set up in the way it's needed. So then you got to go through the testing protocol to figure out your benchmarks. So where are you? Where's your speed? Where's your strength? Where's your endurance? Where's your cognition? How well do you sleep? What's your blood profile? We do a lot of blood profiling to analyze limitations with athletes. And uh, you know that's something I've been doing for nearly 20 years. You know, as a physiologist, that was a big part of what I used to do. And you'd look at um, levels of various nutrients and make sure the athletes are low in certain things and try to optimize their ability to recover, ability to train harder. So it's a very personalized approach. It's not a, hey, you, you, this is a package that you sort of do and everyone does the same thing. It's very much focused on elite performers and putting together, one, what resources do you currently use and have access to? What are you potentially missing and how do we make sure that we optimize that plan? So that's sort of the elite level um, concept and how, how it works. Um, and then we have a lot of individual educational options that for many people is all they, all they really um, need or want, depending on their level. And that's our academy site. It's called com, And that's just a educational resource. And it's all searchable by topic. And you can search on pretty much anything related to tennis, sports science, fitness, uh, performance. Um, there's webinars. There's tips. There's education. Um, and that's sort of the uh, ability for people to search topics that they're most interested in. Uh, and then we have individual courses on on various topics as well. So we've got an education division that does all that, um, and then our you know personalized one on one consulting and evaluation services are a, a different area.
1: Well, and you mentioned benchmarks a few times, and I've also heard you mention online uh, the fitness combine. And for those that don't know, they do the combines in famous for the NFLs where. Maybe you can explain it better than me, Mark, but it's somewhere where if you do well at the combines, these, all these various fitness tests, you moves you up to draft rankings. Is that the way it works?
0: Yeah. So combine, the term is, I think, a very much an American term originally, and it started with the NFL combine. Um, which was uh, a bunch of physical tests, the 40-yard dash, the vertical jump, the broad jump or long jump. We have a couple agility sprint movements called the 5-10-5. Five, five. You, you, know, you run five yards, then you change direction and run 10 yards and run five yards again. And these aren't necessarily that specific to the sport, but they're great general physical tests that have – you know, decades and decades of normative data, which is really important. So you know what the greats in previous generations did, you know how you currently compare, and you also know what you need to improve on if you're lower than you need to be to play a certain position. So if you're lower than you should be in a certain skill, you won't get drafted or your draft level will drop because they say, hey, you're not fast enough or you're not strong enough to play at this position in this league even though you did well in juniors you may have done well in college even there's another step up to play at the pros and you just don't have the physical skills to get there and it may just be you haven't trained it well enough so if you train it the right way you can improve it or you just genetically may not have that you may be maxing out your genetic ceiling and it's just not good enough so that's how the combine is utilized and um, about five years ago, we sort of started talking about the need for tennis to have more of a tennis combine that was specific to tennis that could help athletes understand where they are. It could help college coaches, which they're using a lot now, evaluate players to see, okay, are you at a level where you could play at, at the collegiate level and then we also have normative data on hundreds of top pros. The reason that this is so valuable is this data has been collected for over 30 years now. So it goes back in the US to the Agassiz Sampras generation. Um, you know Lindsay Davenport, that that age group um, generation. So you've got normative data that is over 30 years. Uh, and continue to collect it, continue to evaluate what pros should be getting, what good juniors should be getting, male and female. Um, so it, it really allows us to give a snapshot of what you need to work on. This is not talking about how you hit a tennis ball, it's talking about physically what are the skills, you know, from a physical perspective, you should be hitting. And again, it's not. Um, A definitive answer that if you are low in certain areas, you can't make it. It's just saying that you're below your competitors at this. And unless you have some exceptional skill in some other area, you're not likely to be successful with these low um, scores. So that could just be a need for you to focus on training. And then you have to do the right type of training to improve these areas.
1: So I can be a top junior or a various junior in my country, top level, or even a, a senior player, and I can come to you and you do the test, you compare it against the benchmarks and go, kid, you're wasting your time here, you're never going to make it. Or two, you're ahead, keep doing what you're doing. Or three, you need to work on a few different things. So you, you can actually, and you say it's not definitive, but you can get a good gauge of where somebody's going to end up.
0: Most definitely, and and this is not something they have to come to us. We we put this out. It's called the Tennis Fitness Combine. You can go to our website and download it. It's it's this it's the tests. It's videos on how to perform them. You don't need a lot of equipment. That's the one thing we tried to do with this. With the tests we do at our uh, you know at the institute, we use a lot of technology, quite expensive force plates and camera systems and all this other stuff, but. This Tennis Fitness Combine is designed that all you need is, a, a, is your phone now, a stopwatch, you need a tape measure, you need one medicine ball, uh, and that's it, and and some tennis balls. And I we've set it up that you can do it all on the tennis court. So you don't need any real equipment. It doesn't really cost anything. You can do larger groups if you're an academy or a coach or, or someone that works with a lot of different players. So it's a very easy, cost-effective way to test your athletes, to give them great feedback. And again, I never say an athlete will never make it, but I'll just say you're just not tracking on the same pathway as athletes in the past that have made it. So that hopefully gives some motivation for them to continue to work harder. And then in six months or a year, if they haven't improved some of these metrics and they've tried and they've trained and they've worked really hard on it, then they probably realize that their ceiling is not as high as it needs to be to to get to that level. And I'm very big on being realistic just because I've seen so many athletes for so many years that it's unfair to to try to tell someone um, false truths. It's much better to be honest and realistic about where they're at. Um, And at a young age, it's much harder. I mean, we all know that no one should be predicting a lot when someone's eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. It's too, it's too young in the sport of tennis. There's too many variables. They can grow. They can, they can, their body changes so much that there there's so many things that happen, but once you get to 14, 15, 16, you get a lot more predictive ability. And throughout the last thirty years, we've seen that not only on the physical side, but also on results. I mean, results are relatively predictive. We've done quite a few studies on predicting uh, top hundred ATP and WTA success from junior results, and so we have this pathway to the pros study that we've we've done multiple iterations of of it over the last six years, um, and it's very consistent. It's not it's not complicated to predict. Who's going to be a professional tennis player? Um, it is somewhat difficult to predict exact rankings, of course, but you know players that are likely to be a top ten player. The top ten predictive path is relatively consistent. Um, top hundreds more variable, of course. There's different different ways to get there, but there are some non-negotiables about things that players have to be. If they haven't done this, we haven't seen a player be successful. So certain things are, you know, at at 15 uh, and 16 on, on the men's side, you have to be a highly ranked national player. Um, you don't have to be the best. You, uh, you don't have to be number one in your country or anything like that. But you do have to be at a high national level, meaning that there aren't these diamonds in the rough that people always talk about the possibility of someone, hey, they're a late bloomer. There are such things as late bloomers, but they're still in the mix. They may be twenty or thirty. Uh, in I'm using US rankings because yeah. large countries. Smaller countries are going to be a little bit more challenging because your total numbers are so much smaller. So you have more more one off scenarios. Um, but we've we've seen the data from um, international. So you know we treat Europe sort of as as a region, North America as a region. Um, Asia, Austra- uh, Asia, Australasia as a region, um, and it's it's very, very consistent uh, is the best way to say it. There aren't a lot of um, crazy outliers, and that's partly due to the sport. It's such a complex sport because in other sports you can get outliers because they're physically gifted and they may pick up the sport late and they may just be physically so good that they can be play certain positions. Like in the NFL, we see that a lot. We see a player that played basketball and baseball in junior is a lot. And then at 16, they decide to play football. And then four years later, they're in the NFL. That's because they're super fast, super athletic, and they can you know, learn a playbook to run certain routes. And that's how they're able to do it. Tennis just has so much complexity to how to play it, the skill set needed. Um, And the amount of hours that you need to spend training—that it's very difficult to pick the sport up late and and be successful.
1: Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It it really—if you're a young kid, listen to this. You know, you're in it for the long haul, and as you say, there's nothing guaranteed. Speaking of junior players, how much time should they be spending on court and off the court and weights? Like, I had this discussion with Matt Little. When should Weights start in the junior program. With the athletes you work work with or advise, Mark, when should weights enter the equation for juniors?
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's always a great question, you know. And the the general statements are where we get into trouble with this discussion because you know let's start with the weights discussion. Athletes should be doing some form of weight training as young as possible, as soon as they can understand an instruction. So five, six, seven, eight years old. But what does that look like? That could be bodyweight lunges. That could be band work. That could be light resistance. We're not trying to add significant muscle at that stage. What we are trying to do is train motor patterns, train behavior, train skills that over time as they get older, and we do want to add load, that they actually know how to train they know movements, they, they understand the process of training. So that's where it's important to define what we mean by strength training or weight training. So it's not about, hey how how should they be 12 or 14 before they start? I'm like, no, they got to start much younger than that, but they got to do it the right way. It's not about loading the athlete. It's about teaching mechanics, just like we train tennis strokes at four, five, six years old. That's not exactly the same type of training we do with a 14-year-old on the tennis court, but we're still teaching them. They're still learning the skills. And the earlier they learn, the early initiation, the better they're going to be for the long run. We see that in golf and we see that in all sports. The younger you teach someone, the better they retain the skills and the easier it is for them in the long run. The same thing with strength training. So hopefully that makes sense. And I don't want people to misinterpret that I'm saying, hey, we're going to load someone up at six years old with a hundred you know, pounds, or, you know, 40 kilos on their back, and they're going to squat really heavy. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about body weight, light resistance. And a lot of the time it's less than body weight. I think one of the things people misunderstand that I may do a five kilogram um, dumbbell bench press with a six-year-old which is a lot less resistance than a push-up. But they're using a five-pound dumbbell. Is that bad? No. It's actually, in some respects, safer than doing a lot of push-ups with a a six-year-old because it's less resistance. So it's important to sort of understand what we're talking about with that. And then your second question, which is even more of a discussion, is what should the volume be on court? How many hours of training? How many hours in the weight room? Things like that. And I try to very much get away from hours as your metric. If, if, if time is your only metric, you don't know what you're measuring because time by itself is terrible gauge because it doesn't take into account the intensity of the work. It doesn't take into account the perception from the athlete of how hard they feel it is. So we use you know, a simple RPE, rating of perceived exertion scale, it's been used in research for over 50 years and it's, it's very accurate and it's easy to do. It's just asking how hard is this session in a one to 10 scale. And so if an athlete says this session is a nine and the coach thinks the sessions are four, we have a real big disconnect between what's happening. And that happens all the time. An athlete may be tired that day. They may not have slept well. Um, They may have done something at school that was physically draining in in school. The coach didn't know about. And so we got two different perceptions of what that session was. So my biggest recommendation is definitely monitor time, but also monitor RPE, rating of perceived exertion. And um, we've got something on the International Tennis Performance Association site, which is called the Return to Tennis um, Model. Um, And that kind of outlines that of how to monitor your training sessions. So it takes into account time, it takes into account RPE, and it allows you to create a daily metric, which is very simple, that a coach or a parent can monitor each day and then allows you to adjust based on what you see. So in general, if you want to play at at the professional level, you're going to need to train a lot, a lot more than most people do. The challenge is it's not just time, it's quality of the sessions. And I think everyone knows that, that the quality of the sessions are very variable depending on who the coach is, who the athlete is, what the setup is. um, And that needs to be prioritized even more so than total time.
1: You make some great points there, Mark. And I I do like the way you broke down the the whole weights discussion where too many times, inclu- well myself, when you think of weights, you think it's weights, how to add more weights. And I think it was nice to hear you say, look, it's not about adding weight. It's about training the movements, the patterns, which is really important because from a technical point of view, whether you're a or tennis player, I think normally by looking at some of these strokes, you can tell when they began to take up the sport because the younger guys are always so much smoother, Somebody takes up the sport a bit later. The older they get, the less smooth the strokes are. So I'm sure the same applies to the the, the weight room movements.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And I, I, de- I deal with a lot of these players at 15, 16, 17 that want to play high-level collegiate tennis or professionally. And then you know they've been told um, not to do weights until they're 14 or 15. So then they start at 15 and many of them it's it's a challenge because they've got these they've got these issues with their body already these adaptations that they've had from just playing tennis that physically it takes years sometimes you can't even overcome them because they're so you know messed up because they haven't done the training early on that you know it's it's unfortunate because you can't go back in time so if you're working you know anyone listening who's got younger players make sure they're on a quality program at a young age. And it's not about volume. It's not about overdoing it at the young age. It's about teaching. It's all about teaching them so that they set themselves up for long-term success.
1: Nice. And about the RPE, uh, the rate of exertion and how players feel, there's plenty of tools out there, all the wearables now. What's your thoughts on the likes of Whoop and Aura Ring, which I'm a big big believer in, absolutely love my Aura Ring, Are you pro those tools on athletes?
0: Yeah, so at our institute, we've worked with um, those two companies you mentioned and and about seven or eight others that all are in a similar space of monitoring uh, various aspects. And for the folks that aren't familiar with these products, um, Whoop uh, is a wrist-worn device similar to a watch Um, that mainly measures heart rate variability, and heart rate variability is the variable aspects of your heartbeat from beat to beat. Uh, I actually did my PhD with a component of heart rate variability, so I've been involved in monitoring devices for, for nearly a decade and a half now, before they were even commercialized, and it's a complicated area because these companies have done a great job of simplifying complex physiology, and trying to give you one number, kind of, most of them use it, they call it a readiness score or an ability to train score, meaning how they're trying to use the term fatigued as a general um, term, but it's not as simple as that. Fatigued is very complicated. You have nervous system fatigue, which is meaning the signal from the brain of the muscle is delayed or restricted or in, inhibited a little bit. So you don't get that signal as fast as normal. But then you also have a cellular or muscular fatigue, which is, um, you know, a lot of the time what you see, you know, when people feel tired, when you have a hard workout and at the end of the workout, you feel really tired, your legs feel heavy, you just feel like you had a tough workout. They're two different um, systems that are in play, but are both impacting fatigue. And these devices are trying to sort of give you a sense of what that looks like on a day to day basis. Um, so it gives you a number, and if the numbers you know higher at certain times, it could potentially mean that you need to rest a little bit more. Um, I'm simplifying things a lot, but that's basically the concept. Um, and like you said, you've got the aura ring, which is a a ring that measures similar things to whoop. The 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 one benefit of an aura ring is it measures temperature as well and temperature, skin temperature gives you one extra variable that can be very, very valuable. Um, and so all these devices are getting better. They've all got limitations. And so I always caution people that these numbers are valuable as a tool, but don't base all your decisions on these numbers because single numbers um, trying to you know, define the complex physiology of the human body into one number is really risky and inaccurate. But it is a valuable tool and it provides one piece of a of a larger puzzle that you're trying to solve.
1: Thanks for breaking that down. There's a great explanation. I've, I just find where I wouldn't look at it on a daily basis. I more like to look at it on a monthly basis and see if it correlates to a general team. And I find sometimes it does, because sometimes you wake up and let's say you're it could give you a readiness score, it could be like 70, but you actually feel pretty good. So as you say, you have to take the the numbers with a pinch of salt, but I think the overview, you get a good benchmark and you get a good feel for it. And I think it's good just thinking about these things.
0: It definitely is. We use it a lot for highlighting um, education for players. Hey, if they go out one night and stay out really late and don't get as much sleep that night, you will see a change in their scores. And it's a way to educate them. Hey, you realize when you went out, this is what happens. So if you do this consistently, um, it impacts your performance. You may not feel it the next day always because you're young and you can handle that in your mind, but physiologically, there's obviously a difference, and it's it's really valuable from that education perspective. Or if someone who's older, you know, drinks some some wine, for example, that can impact their score quite significantly. Um, so it allows you to sh- kind of test out certain things in your body and say, Hey, when I drink, say red wine, I have a certain response. If I drink, say beer, I have a different response. So certain individuals respond differently to different alcohols. So that's one aspect that you can use it for. It's sort of self self-testing you're sort of using yourself as a guinea pig and you're figuring out what works for you and because it's not the same for everyone that's the unique part of this as well
1: yeah no it's crazy i I think they're great and i advise people to try and pick one up so you get a better understanding of your body and of things you do uh so they're good but uh mark it's been absolute pleasure having you on i've learned so much there And we could stay talking for hours, I think, because I love all these topics, but uh, that's it for today. And where can people find out more about you if they want to learn?
0: Yeah, so I mean, just go to KovacsInstitute.com and that's um, kind of our um, main site and you can kind of get in contact with us there. Um, com is our educational site, so if people want to check that out, they can. Um, And then if there's any coaches, trainers, therapists out there, I highly recommend them looking at the International Tennis Performance Association. It's a trade association we started nearly a decade ago with a bunch of experts. And it's all focused on tennis, fitness, sports science, education.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mark. A lot was learned by me. And now I'm super excited for the upcoming live webinar with Mark. Keep your eye on it. As usual, I'll be back next week. And until then, goodbye.